Welcome back to True Crimes Untold. I'm your host, Jess. This next episode is on the Hillside Strangler. were 13 victims, all young women, most of their bodies discovered on hillsides above Hollywood. And today, 14 months after the most recent of the stranglings, the police announced they have their man. Hello, all of you beautiful people out there. How are you guys? I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. So, how many of you have watched Squid Game? I know tons of you probably have. It's been out for like over a year. But I just started it. And let me tell you, that show is fucking depressing. It's good, but it is sad. I don't know why I didn't expect that it was going to go into such detail of these characters. I thought it was going to be more of like just about the games and how they killed these people, like random people. But no, it's a full-on storyline and... Because I'm maybe a cancer and so empathetic, I don't know, I am attached to these characters and I'm just sobbing in the episodes, like the old man and the girls who are becoming friends. It's sad. There should have been a questionnaire before this show. Do you get so attached that you cry if something happens to your favorite character? Yes, you do. Maybe this isn't the right show for you. It's good though, so I do suggest it, but uh, wah. Anyway, enough of my babbling. It's like 9 p.m. here, so let's get into this episode. This case was a pretty popular one, even though it's not talked about a lot, like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer, even though it was just as big as those ones. I'm going to give a listener's disclaimer because this episode does include adult language, of course. It includes rape and murder and just anything bad that you could pretty much do to a human being. So if you don't want to hear things like that, I understand. I would just go ahead and skip on past. This week's episode is on the Hillside Strangler. The story begins on October 18, 1977, when a detective is called to a crime scene right outside of Los Angeles, California, along the Ventura Freeway. A young woman's body was found just off the freeway, and she appeared to have been brutally murdered. As the detective was looking over her body, he noticed marks around her neck, wrist, and ankles. It was obvious that she had been bound with a rope and then strangled. A coroner later confirmed that this was her cause of death and confirmed that the victim had been raped before she was murdered. Something else also stuck out to the coroner. The victim had been thoroughly cleaned by the killer before her body was dumped along the freeway. This made police believe that this crime was premeditated and not an impulsive one. The victim would later be identified as Yolanda Washington. Yolanda was a sex worker that lived in the area. 
She was killed in another location and then dumped on the side of the road, but with no physical evidence left behind, police have no idea why this happened to Yolanda, or even where she was originally killed. Police didn't know at the time that this was just the beginning of the largest and longest case of their careers. Yolanda was the first victim of this killer, but she was not the last. Just about two weeks later, on November 1, 1977, police were called to La Cresta, a suburb that's around 12 miles north of Los Angeles. When police arrived, they find a body of a young woman lying face up in a driveway and she was completely naked. The homeowner of the driveway covered the woman's naked body with a tarp so kids on their way to school and people headed to work wouldn't have to see it. When police are inspecting the body, they realize that she has similar ligature marks as their first victim, so they quickly connect both crimes. This victim had been bound at her wrists and ankles and had ligature marks wrapped around her neck, and just like their first victim, she had been raped prior to her death and was killed somewhere else and then dumped in another location. Police are wondering if maybe this woman was tossed out of a moving vehicle since she was found in such a residential area and there were no eyewitnesses. But this would mean that there had to be more than one person involved. The victim was identified as 15-year-old Judith Miller. She had recently dropped out of high school and ran away from home. Police reached out to family and friends who knew Judith before she ran away, and they discovered that she had been working as a sex worker, and she was last seen the night before her body was found. On October 31st, one witness recalled seeing Judith get into a large, two-toned sedan along Sunset Boulevard. This was the first lead for detectives as they continued their search for this person who was targeting sex workers in and around the Los Angeles area. Within just a few days, police find another body, but this victim didn't have any prior connection to sex work. Five days later, on November 6, another body was found right outside the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale, California, about 10 miles south of where the last victim was found. Just like the first victims, this young, girl, this young woman looked like she had been bound with rope and then strangled. She had similar ligature marks and she was also raped. This third victim was identified as 21-year-old Alyssa Caston, and just like her last victim, Alyssa was not a sex worker. She worked as a waitress and was a dancer with the LA Knockers, which was an all-female dance group. Alyssa had been at work the night before her body was discovered, and she was last seen by co-workers leaving the restaurant. Just a few hours later, she was found in an isolated area, and police now believe this killer is targeting women no matter what their profession is. Three young women are now dead, seemingly killed by the same offender or offenders, and they were all kidnapped, bound, raped, and then dumped in three different locations. Police had no idea who they were looking for, but they knew the cases were linked. The first two murders sadly didn't get a lot of media attention since both women were sex workers, and it wasn't until the third victim was found that police started to take this case more seriously. 
it was around this time that some people started to report some odd interactionings happening. In early November, a woman named Catherine Laurie Baker, who was the daughter of the famous actor Peter Laurie, reported that two men approached her claiming to be police officers. They both had badges that they flashed at her, and they demanded that she go with them for questioning. Catherine said that she was taken off guard, that when the two men approached her, she felt like they were going to arrest her, and she didn't know what to do. It wasn't until the men looked inside of her wallet and saw pictures of Catherine with her father, got nervous, lost interest, and just walked away from Catherine. Catherine assumed it was a misunderstanding, and she didn't think of it again until months later. About two weeks had passed, and police learned that another body had been found, and they would also discover that in one day, this unknown killer or killers would double the total of their victims. A nine-year-old boy and his friends were out treasure hunting on a hillside near the Dodgers Stadium when they stumbled across two bodies in Elysian Park. At first, the boys thought it was mannequins, but when they got closer, they realized it was two girls that weren't much older than them. Both girls had been stripped naked and left exposed to the elements. The victims were 12-year-old Dolores Ann Cepeda and 14-year-old Sonia Marie Johnson, who were last seen about a week prior to their bodies being found. The two girls boarded a bus and stayed on for approximately two miles, and then some witnesses saw them approach a two-toned sedan, and that was the last time either girl was seen. Police believe the girls were abducted, even though the witnesses said they approached the van willingly, and that's all police really had to go on. The girls were missing for about a week, and by the time their bodies were found, they had already started to decompose. The coroner said the cause of death of both victims was strangulation, and both girls were raped, just like the other victims. But due to the fact that decomposition had started, there wasn't much more that they could tell, and since this was 1977, it limited the amount that they could learn at that time. On that same day, another body had been found just right outside of Glendale. Hikers had stumbled upon a nude body, and the victim was later identified as a 20-year-old college student named Christina Welker. Christina was an honor student at the Art Center College of Design. Her body had the exact same ligature marks as the previous victims on her wrists, ankles, and neck, and she had been strangled to death. However, unlike the other victims, Christina seemed to be violently abused before her death. There was bruising over her torso and signs of intense sexual trauma. It also appeared like Christina had been injected with an unknown substance. Investigators couldn't tell what it was, so they'd wondered if it was some type of drug, but Christina didn't have any other track marks on her body that would indicate she was a user. When the substance was finally tested, it was determined to be Windex, Yes, Windex, the cleaning item we probably all have under our kitchen sinks right now. It's unknown why Christina was injected with this, but police believe it was an attempt to either harm her or try to cover up the crime. 
So in just one day, police discovered three more bodies, which they attributed to this killer or killers, which brought the total victim count to six. On November 23rd, just three days later, another body was discovered. This body was found near the Los Feliz off-ramp along the Golden State Freeway. Unfortunately, police believe this victim had been there decomposing for weeks, so there wasn't much that they could do when it came to testing, but they were able to at least identify her. The victim was 28-year-old Evelyn Jane King. She was an actress, actress that had gone missing earlier that month. Police can tell that just like the other victims, she was strangled to death, but because of the decomposition, it was impossible to know if she endured any type of torture or rape before her death. Police know that this killer has murdered at least seven women and girls in a very short period of time, but they don't have a lot to show for their investigation, and the only lead that they have is this two-tone sedan. A task force was finally put together to help catch the man that the media was now calling the Hillside Strangler. On November 29th, police were called to a location of another body. The body was found near Glendale at Mount Washington. Once again, this victim had the same ligature marks as all the other victims. The coroner noted that this victim had electric burns on her hands, likely some kind of torture afflicted on her by her killer. She was identified as Lauren Ray Wagner. Lauren was 18 years old and lived in the San Fernando Valley with her parents and was a business major at a nearby college. The night before her body was discovered, she never returned home as expected and her car was found parked across the street from her parents' home with the car door wide open. Her neighbors said they saw Lauren return home that night and they saw her get abducted from her car, not by one man, but by two. The witness was able to give a description of both men. They said that the one man was older and shorter and had bushy hair. The other man was younger and much taller. This was the first physical description that police got of their killer, and this also gave police confirmation that there may be more than one man involved in this killing spree. A few weeks would pass when police learned that the hillside strangler struck again. This time the killer had been bolder than he had ever been before, dumping a body in downtown Los Angeles. On December 14, 1977, police were called to a deserted lot near L.A. City Hall where they found the body of a 17-year-old sex worker. The victim was Kimberly Diane Martin, and she endured a long period of torture before her death, exactly like the other victims. Kimberly had heard all the news about the murders in the area and that the killer was targeting sex workers. She decided it would be safer to stop working on the streets and sign up for a call girl agency instead. But this decision is what put Kimberly in the path of the strangler. The day before Kimberly was murdered, she was called to an apartment in town. The address that was given to Kimberly was actually a vacant apartment that the killer had broken into to lure Kimberly there. Police believe Kimberly was restrained inside of the apartment and then taken to another location where she was murdered. 
Police checked phone records, but unfortunately the killer used a payphone, and inside the apartment they left no physical evidence behind. Over the next few months, police struggled to find out who these killers were, with hardly any eyewitnesses or any leads they weren't sure what direction to look in next. Police start to link other sightings and complaints to the Hillside Strangler case, and they believe that these two men are using the authority given to police officers to try and restrain their potential victims and to get people to go with them willingly. A few weeks had passed and no new bodies were showing up, and police thought that maybe the crime spree had come to an end. That was until about two months later in February of the next year, when the body of one more victim would be found. On February 17, 1978, a helicopter spotted an orange Datsun on a cliffside. When they saw this car on the cliff, they originally feared that there had had been an accident, so a rescue team was sent to check the car. When police got to the car, they realized right away that there had been no accident, but the car was intentionally driven off the road, and inside of the trunk was the owner of the vehicle, a young woman. She was 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, who was a student in the area and worked as a part-time waitress. Cindy had been raped, tortured, and strangled, and just like the other victims, she had the exact same ligature marks. Nobody knew for sure when Cindy had gone missing, but police believed she was targeted because she was a young, attractive woman. After she was murdered, she was placed in the trunk of her own car and then pushed off the cliff. Because of Cindy's murder, police knew for sure that the hillside strangler was still out there, but they weren't sure when he was going to strike again. A few months went by when police were approached about a similar case involving two victims, but this time in a completely different state. These bodies were found in Bellingham, Washington. On January 11, 1979, two college students, 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder, were lured to a staircase and strangled from behind. When police found the bodies, they immediately thought it could have been the hillside strangler, and this time there was a ton of evidence. This evidence pointed to one man, a man named Kenneth Bianchi. Kenneth worked as the security guard at the college, and the very next day, police arrested Kenneth for the murders, and when police in Bellingham noticed that his driver's license was from California, they wondered if this could be the man that the entire state of California has been looking for. When police start looking into Kenneth, they realize that he, this tall, younger man, had connections to a short, older man, his cousin, Angelo Bono. Police learn that Angelo was born in 1934 in Rochester, New York, and he was raised by his mother even though they never had a great relationship. When Angelo was just a teenager, he began his lengthy criminal career, which included crimes like grand theft auto, assault, rape, and failure to pay child support. Angelo had married a few different women, but those relationships would all end when the women would see his true colors come out. Angelo didn't seem to respect women, and he was incredibly abusive. 
He would use women for sex and money, and he would always become violent in his relationships, but not before he would pop out a few kids with them. Eventually, Angelo moved to California, and that's where he was befriended by his Kenneth, his cousin, Kenneth Bianchi. Kenneth was born in 1951 to an alcoholic sex worker, and he was put up for adoption as a baby, and he ended up being adopted by his aunt and uncle. As a child, Kenneth was very bright, but was known to be lazy. His parents also noticed that Kenneth was a compulsive liar from an early age. He had anger issues, and he also had trouble with wetting the bed. In 1964, when Kenneth was a teenager, his dad passed away and from all accounts, he took it very hard. He began to withdraw further into himself. Kenneth would eventually marry his high school sweetheart and work a series of dead-end jobs. The marriage didn't last long and Kenneth started to pursue other women, including sex workers. Now, these women weren't necessarily interested in dating Kenneth, but he started stealing valuables to give to them, trying to buy their love. This is the period where Kenneth is trying to find purpose in his life, and Angelo had just moved to California. Angelo was nearly 20 years older than Kenneth, and Kenneth seemed to look up to Angelo, so they moved in together. Kenneth was struggling to find work, and he didn't really have any skills or knowledge to qualify him for a good job. Eventually, they run out of money, and instead of trying to go out and find a job, they decide to do something else. Angelo comes up with a plan that they will find two girls, and they will start to pimp them out. Within a few days, they find two runaways who were just looking for a place to crash. Once they got the girls into their home, Kenneth and Angelo forced them into their plan, even though neither one of them consented to it. They began to pimp out the two teenagers, and they had complete control over both girls. Angelo and Kenneth would take almost all of the money that the two girls would earn, and they would never let the girls out of their sight. They were so possessive over these girls that they became aggressive and abusive and even started to rape both of them. If the girls would try to leave, they would be locked in a room without food or water until Angelo and Kenneth felt like they could control them again. This went on for a while, but thankfully the two girls were able to escape. With the girls gone, Angelo and Kenneth didn't have an income, so they began to look for two new young and impressionable girls to take money from. But first, they came up with a new plan. They begin to ask around in some of the circles if anybody has a trick list that they would be willing to sell. Now, a trick list is a list of customers who frequent sex workers, and Angelo and Kenneth thought that they would be able to blackmail the names on the list to make money. They believed they found someone who was willing to put together a trick list for them, a local sex worker named Deborah. Deborah and another sex worker went to their home to sell them the list. However, Angelo and Kenneth quickly find out that this list was a fake, and they begin to plot revenge against the sex worker who sold it to them. The other sex worker who went to the house with Deborah was named Yolanda Washington. Yolanda was the first victim of the Hillside Strangler. She worked on a stretch of road along Sunset Boulevard, and that's how the two men knew to find her. When Angelo and Kenneth approached Yolanda, they pretend to be a couple of police officers, and they arrested her. 
Witnesses told police that they saw Yolanda getting into an unmarked two-tone sedan before her body was discovered. The two men would go on to kill 10 more women over the next few months, and they would kill all of their victims in almost the same exact manner. They would approach the women, pretending to be undercover police officers, even flashing fake badges to get the women to go with them willingly. Once they had the women in their vehicle, they would take them to Angelo's upholstery shop in Glendale. This is where they would torture and kill the women. Other than Yolanda Washington, all the other victims were now being chosen at random. Their murder spree carried on for several months, and police were finding bodies every week at one point. Most of their victims were abducted and killed between October and December of 1977. Surprisingly, during this time, Kenneth was actually trying to become a police officer for the LAPD. He was going on ride-alongs and becoming friendly with local police officers at the same time he was committing these murders with his cousin. In December 1977, the murders began to slow down and police were beginning to narrow down on a suspect, Kenneth Bianchi. Kenneth had told Angelo about the time he had been spending with the police and even admitted that he had been questioned by investigators. Angelo did not take this news well, and he exploded on Kenneth. Angelo was definitely the smarter of the two, and he realized that police were likely on to Kenneth and were trying to get him to talk by acting like his friend. Angelo tells Kenneth that he needs to get out of California for a while. So, in May of 1978, about three months after the last murder, Kenneth moves to Bellingham, Washington and gets a job as a security guard at a college. Kenneth murders the two college students, and that was the last time he struck before he was taken into custody. Police quickly linked Angelo to the murder spree as well, and the cousins are charged with 10 murders and many other crimes, including kidnapping, rape, and sodomy. Kenneth was also charged with the two murders in Birmingham. Prosecutors knew that they had an airtight case against Kenneth because he had done such a poorly job covering up the murders in Washington, so they moved against him first. They knew if they could get a conviction on Kenneth that it would be easier to take Angelo to trial. When the trial began, Kenneth tried, Kenneth tried to use mental illness for the root cause of his crimes. He told the court that he had a dissociative identity disorder and that he had a split personality and that he was the one to carry out the crime. Kenneth called his other identity Steve Walker. But police find out that Steve Walker was actually a college student that Kenneth knew, and police think that was the first name that popped into Kenneth's head, so that's the name he used. The court psychologist that was examining Kenneth said that most people who have this disorder have at least three and four personas, so they knew that Kenneth was faking it. When Kenneth hears this, he tells them that he does have another persona, and his name is Billy. But this fooled no one, so Kenneth had no other option but to turn on his cousin Angelo and cooperate with prosecutors who were planning to pursue capital punishment against him. Kenneth agreed to testify, and he pled guilty to the charges against him. Angelo's case, on the other hand, was a much tougher one. 
The trial would be delayed for months as prosecutors try to figure out how to incorporate Kenneth's testimony against his cousin. Angelo's legal team tried to make it seem like Kenneth was the mastermind behind everything, and this defense was actually working. Kenneth did everything he could to hinder the trial, which made him a very unreliable witness. Angelo's trial lasted two years, which is the longest in American history. The trial came to an end in 1983, and Angelo was finally found guilty on nine counts of murder. The judge told Angelo that he wished he could impose the death penalty on him, but that power was out of his hands. Because of his plea deal, Kenneth accepted a life sentence with the possibility of parole, but Angelo, on the other hand, received a stiffer punishment. He got life without the possibility of parole. Kenneth was sent to Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, and Angelo was sent to Calipetra State Penitentiary in California. Angelo was in prison prison for a few years before he died in September 2002 from a massive heart attack. Kenneth is still in prison today, just right outside of Walla Walla. After Kenneth was arrested, he began a relationship with a woman named Veronica. They got married, and months later after Kenneth was found guilty, they came up with a plot where Kenneth would stockpile his semen and smuggle it out of the prison for Veronica. Veronica would take the semen and arrange to meet a sex worker at a hotel where she attempted to strangle the sex worker and leave the semen to make it look like the hillside strangler was still out committing murders and that police arrested the wrong men. Thankfully, the woman survives and reported Veronica, and while Veronica was in custody, she told police about the plot that her and Kenneth had come up with. But even if the plan would have worked, the semen found at the crime scene would have still been Kenneth's DNA, which just proves that he was not the intelligent one. Kenneth was denied parole in August 2010, and his next parole hearing is in 2025. Because of the crimes that Kenneth and Angelo committed, hopefully for the victim's loved ones, he will never be released from prison. These two men stole the futures of 10 different women, so why should Kenneth Bianchi be given a future outside of prison? Just remember to always question anything that doesn't seem right to you, even if it's a police officer. It's okay to verify that they are who they say they are. If you ever find yourself being pulled over by an unmarked vehicle and you're not sure if it's really a police officer or not, Turn on your signal to let them, let them know you see them, but continue to drive to a public place to pull over. And you can contact police and they will stay on the phone with you to make sure that it is a real police officer pulling you over. Never feel crazy about questioning a situation that doesn't feel right. It may save your life one day. So thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. It's a it's just crazy that you know Kenneth Bianchi trying to become a police officer with the same police department who was investigating his murders. Like last week's episode of um Rodney the uh, dating game killer like 
the things he would do, like going and getting on a dating game show in the midst of being looked for, for murders. Like it, it just, they're so like bold and ballsy, but hey, that's why they end up getting caught. So fuck you both. <laughs> Anyway, thank you guys. I will be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. Until then, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Facebook. No, that's not what it's called. Let's try that again. True Crimes Untold Podcast. Go ahead on Spotify. Click the click this. Oh my God, I truly can't talk. I am so sorry. Thank goodness this is the end of the episode. Click on the subscribe button and you will get notifications with new episodes. All right, I'm done. Goodbye. Good night. Have a great one. See you next time. Love you all. Mwah. <laughs>